Hello and welcome back to Crawford Insights, the podcast where we take a recent post from the Crawford Investment Council blog and dive just a bit deeper with the author. I'm your host, Tom Bueller, Portfolio Manager here at Crawford, and today, May 18th, we'll be discussing Demise of the Mall with our guest, Doug Osiello, our Consumer Discretionary Analyst. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and some of your background? Sure. All right. Well, I went to Vanderbilt on an Army ROTC scholarship, graduated, jumped out of planes and blew things up for a couple of years at airborne battalions in Panama and Italy, went to business school in 2000, joined a crosstown rival investment firm, and I've been here at Crawford about the anniversary of my fifth year. Well, you've written an interesting article about the changing consumer preferences and the impact that's had on different retailers and the stocks of those companies. Let's spend some time going over that and looking at what may be likely to happen in the future as well. We'll start kind of high level. And before we get into the specifics of the article, why don't you give us a general update on the U.S. consumer? Before today, I would have said things are super rosy and (laughs) everything proceeding as planned. And maybe I'll give you a few specifics on that in a second. But before I do that, why don't I just talk about corporate balance sheets, consumer balance sheets, general employment, wage growth. All of those things look fairly healthy to us. And investment continues. Credit card data suggests that consumers continue to invest in goods and in experiential services, travel, cruise lines, autos, what have you. So at by and large, I would say the consumer in the United States is fairly healthy. And we've been behind that trend in a lot of our investments. Now, maybe I'll just make a few comments about what's going on today, and I'm sure this will come up later in the course of our conversation. But we've had a couple of earnings reports over the last couple of days that suggest maybe that margins and consumer demand are beginning to wane, maybe the wrong term, but at least maybe don't have the upward direction. You know, the, you can extrapolate that line as you have been able to over the last four or five years. There's a few cracks in the foundation there. So Walmart reported a, a number yesterday that was a little lackluster and made some comments about employment and you know their continued ability to continue to employ workers at the current levels. And then a couple things at the margin on demand and comps. And then Target followed up this morning with a similar kind of argument where gross margin was a little underwhelming. And both of the stocks have suffered a little bit lately. And the read through there is perhaps that there's some cracks in what we think is a pretty strong foundation to consumer spending and continued strength there. Great. That's helpful context. You mentioned when you were talking about that, that consumers have been doing a lot of spending on experiences and services as opposed to hard goods. During the COVID shutdowns, there were really no experiences to be had and there was no travel occurring. So people shifted back to goods once again. Are we seeing that change go back in the other direction towards experiences and services? We think so. And you could make an argument that some of the puts and takes around both those two earnings releases that I just spoke to, Walmart and Target, are a function of that. So rewind a year ago and think about what's happening with pantry stocking and what have you. You were seeing fewer trips to the store, but big baskets and big tickets and big comps. And now people are out more. The reopening has happened largely across the country. So people are making fewer, smaller trips. So maybe that's affecting you know, what's going on in terms of what are pretty important unit level economics at retailers, ticket traffic, and, and then comps. So maybe there's a silver lining in some of what I just described in terms of the volatility around those two stocks. But you know, we think there's a long-term trend in athleisure and outdoor, and it feels like you know, people are a little bit more 
concerned about their own personal health and whether that's, you know, being vaccinated or going out and getting a run around a track or going fishing or going to the beach or what have you, those things are reoccurring and at a, at a bigger rate. We've got some exposure to that in, in a handful of our smaller cap products here at Crawford, and we think those trends should continue. You said, obviously, before the last couple of days, the kind of outlook on the U.S. consumer was very healthy, even though we've just come through this period where there was a lot of disruption across the economy. What's enabled the consumer to stay so healthy? Well, some of it is the reasons the balance sheets are as strong as they are today particularly at the upper incomes, and this is less true at the lower incomes, I'll come to that in a minute, but at the upper income deciles, it's really what we call the Fed put and asset inflation, which has helped both the stock market over the last decade, let's call it, and the housing market. So there's a lot of untapped home equity, home price inflation continues, and disproportionately, both of those drivers, stock price, home price appreciation, have helped higher income. So let's just call it the top half of the country is fairly wealthy, able to spend what they want or what what they need to for sure, notwithstanding what's happened recently in the equity markets and then fears about home prices maybe curtailing their meteoric rise in terms of incremental double-digit price increases in many cities around the country. We think that will continue to provide a good ballast of wealth on hiring consumers. Now, on the other side of that continuum towards the lower deciles, a lot of that has been helped by government stimulus and earned income tax credit, child tax credits, talk about getting rid of student debt, although at the margin that's disproportionately upwards in terms of deciles of income as well. But anyway, point of that is that even the lower income has been helped through a difficult time in terms of the pandemic with in terms of balance sheets by government largesse, which has helped them to hold up better than they might have. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Several different factors at play impacting both the top end and the bottom end. You talked earlier about the change in habits. People, you know, in the last couple of years during COVID had been doing fewer trips, but larger baskets of items. Now they're back to more frequent trips, maybe a smaller basket. How does the spending of the consumer today compare to what we were seeing before COVID, say for calendar 2019? It's almost back to normal. So at the margin, it's a little bit more focused towards experiential and outdoor and a little less movie theater and maybe casual dining. QSR, uh, quick service restaurants, have continued to hold up. Those are kind of more stable, day part people. Judging by the the lines at the Chick-fil-A. Exactly. uh, And and Chipotle for that matter. Despite despite some supply chain issues there. But yeah, for sure, that is the case. But so, yeah, we're almost back to normalized demand patterns and normalized consumption patterns. And and that's not surprising given what I've just described in terms of what's underpinned the strength of the the consumer balance sheet. I will say at the margin, one of the things that we're continuing to watch and a little worried about, speaking to that point about how the lower decibels of income were able to kind of get through the pandemic and pay rent and put a gallon of milk and food on the table. There are some worries there that, you know, as that government largesse dries up, that that lower income will will be sufficiently more challenged. And what that has meant for us in terms of Crawford strategies is we're way less exposed to things like dollar stores and rent to own and things where those comps and incremental spending is dependent upon lower income having more to spend and more ability to shop at the kind of stores that they would be more prone to shop at versus 
kind of upper income decile, like a Tiffany store, for example, or some of the other luxury brands. Yeah, and makes sense. Well, that's a nice overview of where things stand broadly. One of the other trends that we've seen really going back 20, 25 years is the continued proliferation of e-commerce sales and the market share that that's gathered. One of the things people talked about was COVID really accelerating trends, and we saw that definitely with online purchasing. That's kind of what led you to write this article about the demise of the mall as consumer preferences have changed. Is there anything other than just you talked about convenience and price discovery and knowing you can get what you want when you want it. Are those the main drivers that have caused this trend to unfold or what's really behind it? Well, certainly convenience. If you just kind of compare the typical retail experience versus let's just call it the e-com or Amazon experience. It used to be that retailers would create a an economic center, let's just call it a, you know, a power mall or strip mall or what have you, and you'd convalesce a bunch of retailers that were doing well and opening stores and that consumers wanted to go to. They sought out their products, and you could think of a handful of examples over the last you know, 10 or 12 years that have had great success there. And they would all mass on this one retail location with good traffic patterns and consumers, and then they would put products on their shelves so the distribution function fulfilled by the retailer. And then consumers would come and fulfill the pick function, pick things off the shelves. In some cases, they would do the checkout and bagging function, like at Kroger, when you check out and don't use a cashier, you check out and bag the product yourself, and then you take it to your car, and then you take it to your pantry. That, what I just described, is called the last mile, a critical component of retailing, because if you can get the consumer to fulfill the last mile delivery, that's a super cost-effective program for a legacy retailer. The way that's changed now with e-com is that last mile is performed by UPS or a third-party carrier or even Amazon trucks or Amazon's own distribution system. And so the economics have changed drastically for that legacy retailer at the mall who used to put that last mile delivery function onto the consumer. And so now as consumers have wanted to do that less, that power center is filled with less traffic and less consumers. And so you can see how that's a downward spiraling yeah feeds on or unit economic kind of an output so there's a lot of that at play and then you know the fact that amazon and jeff bezos has realized his everything store dream in terms of delivering just about any skew stock keeping unit to any household at any time and sometimes with same day or next day delivery is certainly a very competitive and compelling environment for amazon at the expense of a lot of other retailers so we don't see that changing i mean there's a of course, it will change. Retail is very dynamic, but not changing you know, in terms of reverting back to legacy, four-wall, brick-and-mortar where you're paying owners. The other thing that's changed for a lot of the legacy malls, the, the demisers, let's say, is that they're burdened with long lease lives. And they used to make arguments that, you know, we've got all this space at $4 a square foot, so really great unit-level economics in terms of rent. The problem is... If you don't have the lifeblood of retail, which is traffic, those $4 rents are boat anchors instead of life vests, let's say. So, And the fact that they're long life leases is a significant differentiator where they used to argue, got this great real estate that people want to come to, these traffic centers that attract a bunch of different consumers that come and perform the pick function and the last mile function. As that traffic has declined, that long lease life is essentially a debt 
versus an asset. So we think that the dynamics around how not only retailers think about it, but certainly how Wall Street participants and those who are pricing the equities of department stores, let's say, have come to make that realization. And you can see that in the stock prices of plenty of department stores. You mentioned Amazon. They're kind of the poster child for this movement. It's not a stock that meets our quality criteria in order to be considered for purchase. How are we playing this trend with the stocks that are available for us? Yeah. So a lot of, in fact, to a equity, without exception, all of our retailers are investing in omnichannel, BOPIS, buy online, pick up in store, curbside delivery, ship to store, ship from store. So empowering the existing store base and infrastructure within a company to deliver to consumers the way they want to receive it. So there's Carter's, for example, infant and young child apparel, the leading player in that subsegment of apparel it has a program where you can have things shipped to your home or you can select some items within a particular basket and ship half of them to your home and ship half of them to a store near you or ship if you're a grandmother buying for your your daughter and your grandchild you can ship to your grandchild's closest geographical store so anyway there's a lot of functionality that retailers are adopting to respond to these changing consumer desires to consume the way they want, in the manner that they want, when they want, across the channels that they want. And broadly speaking, the way we call this theme is the four horsemen of the retail apocalypse. And so without giving you a whole lot of incremental detail on that, the summary point of that argument is you have to spend a reasonable amount of money on CapEx, on digital initiatives, on whether it's handheld engagement or knowing when your consumer is driving up in the pickup line so that you deliver a retail experience. They're not out there waiting in the car 15 or 20 minutes, but two, because you can see with your GPS technology that they've that they've shown up and they're in line waiting for you to bring the product curbside. So that's a higher price of poker. The ante is higher for retailers to compete against, let's just call it the new omnichannel e-commerce economy. And there are plenty that have onerous balance sheets to begin with, and some of those traffic center issues that I talked about, they belong to you know, the previous decade or two decades ago, power centers and traffic drivers. And today they have onerous balance sheets, too much debt, and then this lease obligation that is preventing them from being able to invest and catch up. We think there are plenty of retailers that you know, have already missed the boat. You know, that game is over. And we see chapter 11 coming for a lot of those, and maybe in some cases chapter 7, which is you don't go to bankruptcy, you liquidate the entire company. You don't go to chapter 11 being bankruptcy where you can continue as a surviving entity. So anyway. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to come back to the uh, yeah. four horsemen of the retail <laughs> apocalypse because it's something I've heard you talk about right. here internally, and it's right. interesting. But Omnichannel, just so that our listeners are clear on that. So I think I've got a good handle on it, but correct me if I'm wrong here. That's being able to walk into the store, pick it up off the shelf, traditional brick and mortar type of experience, or order online, have it delivered to you, kind of that traditional e-commerce experience, or this somewhat hybrid in between where you're ordering online and picking up in the store. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, yes, so Omni being everything, so all channels, or you can go into the store, find that they don't have your size, go to a kiosk there in the store, order the item to your house or to the store or to your 
grandchild's house because that's where you want to deliver the item. So, right, that's the you know the concept being that consumers are consuming in multiple different ways, multiple different channels, and whether you want it delivered to your curbside or you want to come into the store or you want it delivered to your own house or you want to come in in a traditional fashion and you know flip through, try on three pairs of pants and blue and green and yellow, and then pick whichever fit and then take them with you. So yeah, that omnichannel is is here to stay and, and proliferating and. If you're not already in that game, we fear it's already too late. Right. And it's expensive to get in that game and stay in that game and keep up with the evolving technology and everything that goes into that. Yeah. And maybe just a quick aside on that. So there were some retailers fairly recently that had they were charging shipping charges for that ability to fulfill, whether it's you're shipping to your home or what have you, and not insignificant percent of this particular retailer's operating profit came from shipping charges, you know, being pure profit. Well, that has since been decreted away by the competitive environment. That's kind of that my argument earlier about the price of poker and the ante. And so no consumer is going to stand for being paid a shipping charge and then allowing a retailer to earn essentially operating profit on that because everyone else is in that game and is competing away that profit pool. Yeah. So can you inform us on who the four horsemen of the retail apocalypse are? They won't surprise you. Amazon, Costco, Walmart, and Target. The premise being that all four of them, Amazon we've talked about a little bit, you know, the leader in e-com, 40% share over e-com, sizable double-digit percentage in terms of market share ahead of its closest competitor in e-com. And Walmart and Target both have very nice businesses in e-com. But anyway, the point of that, those four, is that they've all been very well managed over the years, you know, have continued to take share in retail over the years. And then they were all relatively early in terms of investing in e-com, omnichannel, ship to store, ship direct from DC. So that's another piece of omnichannel maybe we didn't delve into yet. But in any case, the fact that those four stand out and they continue to invest in Target's case, for example, their quarter, they just report they spent a billion dollars in CapEx in the quarter. So if you're a smaller retailer trying to compete against Target, whether that's in their home and apparel or home decor business or their electronics business, if you don't have the ability to invest a billion dollars a quarter, chances are you'll be lapped by those. So there's certainly a economies of scale argument to all four of those four horsemen. Yeah, they're the big kids on the block and they're going to take everybody's lunch money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Conceivably. Yeah. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about the direct e-commerce business and how Amazon's not really available to us, but some of these other players are. Are there other investments we can make that are into companies that are providing services or ancillary products that help expand this omni-channel experience? There are, and we own some. UPS is a great example. FedEx would be the the next closest competitor, and we prefer UPS over FedEx without getting into the details. Think about any time you're moving cardboard, enclosed, SKU, product, baby apparel, iPad, what have you, that it's going on some rails, and those rails are UPS rails. Sometimes they're Delta or FedEx or actual railroads and trucking. So there are ancillary ways we're, we're playing that and obviously continue to choose the higher quality assets there, less balance sheet encumbered, consistent dividend payers, people that spouse the dividend as the highest indicator of quality that was one of our founding principles here at Crawford. So there's certainly ways to do that. And then um, I've actually just started to crack the 10K on eBay as a potential candidate for inclusion in 
a couple of our strategies, and that could be a backdoor way to play. We're early days in that potential investment thesis there, so stay tuned. But that could be another way we could continue to participate in what we think is a long-term sustainable trend. Yeah. Well, let's think about the long term and where things go from here. We've talked about reasons why the mall isn't gaining the same level of traffic that it used to, but people still are going out into the world and having in-person retail experiences. We've tended to migrate more towards the strip centers as opposed to traditional large enclosed malls. Why do we think that the strip malls are, you use the phrase, traffic advantaged? Mm -hmm. Well, some of it is that legacy relationship I described earlier about convalescing around one traffic center, power center, and then department stores would secure 10-year, 20-year leases at very attractive rates, and then that traffic would attract other retailers. So it was a certainly a kind of a honeycomb environment as you, you know, brought more bees to the hive, so to speak. And some other retailers who were growing and doing quite well weren't able to get into that power center. They were, in some cases, larger square footage, and it's tougher. So as a consequence of that legacy mall dominance, let's say, other retailers found ways around that, and that was largely the strip centers. Right here behind us, you can see there's a small 8 or 10 or 12 store retail center with Hobby Lobby or some other growing retailer that has found a way to respond to the geographical constraints in terms of not being able to place them all, but still in reasonable traffic patterns where they can make the unit level economics work. And then the other thing is that they were able to secure pretty good rents for some of those strip centers. So if you think tractor supply across the country, kind of out or in, in rural areas, they're really good box, exceptionally well managed. And because of its at the margin rural exposure, the rents are, are much better and they can do a reasonable job. And then it doesn't hurt that there are some agricultural offerings that they offer that Walmart and some others are not able to carry. So it really was a long-term consequence of you know, that legacy mall-based dominance. Maybe just in the interest of fullness, demise of the mall. There's about 1,200 malls in the country and the Green Street Advisors, which is a national research firm, has done quite a bit of work on the the mall footprint. And there's probably a couple hundred A-rated malls of that 1,200, and those are doing well. They're outdoors. You know, they have restaurant draws and, in some cases, you know, entertainment draws, movie theaters and others, despite the fact that we said earlier that movie theaters have been a little more challenged post-COVID. And so I'd want to be sure to note that we're very cognizant of the fact that there are still some existing trophy properties across the mall universe that continue to do quite well. The problem is in the other thousand, let's say, of that 1,200 where traffic continues to be a bit more challenged and we continue to avoid the, the other thousand. Are there things those other thousand malls can do? I mean, not everyone can be in the perfect location, right? Yeah. The prime real estate gets yeah. taken up, but without being in the perfect real estate, can you add some of these other services like restaurants or movie theaters or other yeah. things that'll draw traffic back yeah, to the you're, mall? And you're, you are seeing some interesting things there. I'm not sure that it's going to be a great solution for us. We own a handful of REITs and very few that are in the way of retail. But for example, there's paintball and skate parks going in at the end of certain malls across the country. So archery and axe throwing. So there's some other things that are going on to try and drive traffic there. But I'm not sure that those are going to be enough to kind of revisit the 80s or years ago when the mall was a was a power center in terms of traffic draw. But in terms of drawing incremental traffic and not having to raise 
those thousand malls across the country? Sure, there are ways that they can think creatively about it, things that are more in the way of, say, this athleisure trend that we think has legs. Yeah. One of the other trends that I've heard about recently is the buy now, pay later phenomenon, and not something I'm very familiar with in my retail habits, but how prevalent is that and what's really the driver of that trend? Yeah. I better choose my words carefully here at the risk of not denigrating an entire industry. Well, I guess my counter would be, isn't my credit card already buy now, pay later? Don't I take the item, put it on a credit card, and then pay the bill at the end of the month? We're a little suspect of this trend. It feels a little bit more credit dangerous, where you wonder what person decides to use buy now, pay later instead of their Amex or Visa or MasterCard, where they're already effectively buying now or pay later. Are you disproportionately inviting a lower credit score customer or a customer that is less likely to eventually pay, which creates, obviously, credit issues for you as a retailer down the road. So, And, it, and does the retailer basically take on that credit no, risk? No, it's usually third party. But there is someone out there holding that credit risk. And so for us, it's, uh, I guess, at the margin, if you can create incremental demand, that's better than not having the demand. But I would say broadly our thinking on this buy now, pay later is a little suspect, kind of like our thinking on crypto. Yeah, <laughs> fair. <laughs> so I think I heard you say earlier, you don't really expect the mall experience of the 1980s or 1990s to come back. No more Debbie Gibson concerts, uh, driving T- traffic. Tiffany. 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 <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I got my pop stars wrong there. <laughs> Are there other kind of big trends going on in retail that we haven't discussed already that might be disruptors over the next 20, 25 years? Well, we've touched on athleisure a little bit. I'm not sure that's a disruptor as much as a trend that we expect to continue. I do think the pandemic has caused people to think differently about life experiences and their time and work-life balance and staying in shape and getting out and on the water, whether that's boating or surfing or cycling or, you know, walk around the park with the family or, you know, just walking out with the dogs. I do think that's a sustainable, fundamental change in the psyche of the average American. And we think that's healthy and happy to You'll find ways to continue to invest behind that. We've talked about Omnichannel and that e-com penetration continuing to go higher, so I don't see that changing materially. Yeah, I can't think of anything else offhand that I would say is a clear game changer or incremental that has us, on the one hand, either worried or, on the other hand, eager to get behind a tailwind that we can identify for you know, longer term. I appreciate it, Doug. This was a great opportunity to look at what's happening in the mall over the past few years and where things may be headed. So thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's our show for today. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out Doug's article, Demise of the Mall, on our website at insights.crawfordinvestment.com forward slash perspectives. Subscribe to the podcast blog while you're there and be sure to join us for another episode next month.